welcome to Women Studying the Word. I'm your host, Meredith Beattie. This is the podcast for women who want to study their Bibles, but are unsure how and where to start. I'm here for you to give you the tools and encouragement you need to dig deeper into the Word. No matter who you are or where you are in this process, you can do this. So let's get started. Hey, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. I'm so glad you're joining me. I want to start out today by um, making a little confession, and this is this will serve as kind of a window into my life right now. I don't know about you, but um, for a while now, I've just become really uninspired in the cooking area of my life, my cooking responsibilities. You know, after you've you've cooked so many dinners and had your children ask you every single day, what's for dinner? What's for dinner? It gets a little tiring <laughs> after a while. And I don't know about you, but um, my mom and I, um, sometimes when we're on the phone, we commiserate about how uninspired we are lately about making dinner. So I know a lot of you are, you like to cook, you like to bake, but I've just been uninspired lately. So um, I've been on the lookout for magazines or recipes or, you know, on Pinterest or something like that, trying to find something that will get my cooking inspiration uh, back or revived or something. I don't know. So I was in Costco the other day and I saw this recipe book and it was called The Good Book of Southern Baking. And it had this big biscuit on the front cover. And so I looked at it and it seemed really inspiring. It seemed like these were um, classic recipes, basic recipes that I could do and and I could maybe get inspired. I like to bake and so I bought the book and tonight I was really excited I was going to make one of the recipes. The first recipe in the book was cornbread and so um, I had about an hour to make dinner and usually my my regular go-to cornbread recipe takes me less than an hour. So I thought, okay, maybe I can do this. But um, being a good, um, being an experienced cook or baker, I did read through the recipe. And lo and behold, I needed to have the buttermilk at room temperature. So that wasn't going to happen. And then after it said to get the buttermilk at room temperature, you had to combine that with corn flour and cornmeal. And I had all the ingredients, but um, after you combined that, you had to let it rest for like an hour and more so. um, Actually, she recommended you rest it overnight. So (laughs) all of my inspiration was quickly, quickly deteriorated from reading that. So right now, as I'm recording this episode, the, um, the buttermilk is getting to room temperature downstairs in my kitchen. So hopefully I'll be able to put the beginning stages of that recipe together and maybe make it tomorrow. I don't know. But um, anyway, getting back to why you are listening, we're going to dive into the book of Psalms, specifically Psalm 1. And I plan to cover both Psalms 1 and 2 in this episode, but I quickly realized in preparing that that was going to be too much material for one episode. So I'll be doing two separate episodes, this one on Psalm 1 and the next one on Psalm 2. At the end of the last episode, I mentioned that... um, Bible scholar Tremper Longman calls these psalms, Psalm 1 and 2, the entrance to the literary sanctuary of the book. And what I hope you'll see after our study in this episode and the next is that these two psalms ask the reader two questions upon entering this literary sanctuary. Psalm 1 asks the question, 
Who are you? How do you identify yourself? And I'll tell you at the end of this episode the question Psalm 2 is asking, so you'll have to wait for that. But as a reminder, this study is not all about me telling you what these psalms mean. Remember, my goal in these podcasts is to equip you to study for yourself, giving you tools that you can practice and use going forward, tools you can share with others, tools you can use to study with others. So there's a lot in these psalms we could talk about, and it's been really hard to figure out everything I want to say. But I really want to highlight the most important skills you can learn in studying the Psalms so you can practice them yourselves and share them with others. I really encourage you, if you don't have anybody around you that you think you can study with, just start asking the Lord, pray and ask him to provide you with somebody. Um, But before we get into it, let me give you the obligatory podcast reminders. Make sure you're subscribed to the podcast and because I don't want you to miss any of these episodes on the Psalms. There's going to be some really great ones coming up. And check out the website, womenstudyingtheword.com. That's where you'll find episodes of the show as well as, you know, you can go to Anchor or you can go to um, iTunes or Spotify or wherever you get the podcast episodes. But you can also get episodes on the website. You can also find my blog there, a link to the Instagram, and suggested resources and study questions for each episode. And if you have any questions or just want to give me some feedback as to how this podcast is helping you, I would love an email from you. So email me at meredith at womenstudyingtheword.com. And I'll have all that in the show notes. Um, A special thanks goes out to those who are supporting me with a small monthly donation. I really love these people and you know who you are. If you'd like to join in on supporting what I'm doing, you can do that by going to anchor.fm slash Meredith 43 and clicking on the support button. Again, I'll put a link to that in the show notes as well. One thing I am planning for my supporters is to send them a little thank you gift on a regular basis something related to what we're studying or a resource I have found particularly helpful. So consider that if you're thinking of supporting what I'm doing here. What I'm really trying to do is just build a community of learners who encourage one another. So let's get into Psalm 1. I'm going to read it for you right now. Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So what do we do when we want to first study this psalm? Well, the very first thing we'll do is pray. It's the most important skill you can use and one of the most neglected, unfortunately. Why do you think we forget to pray? (laughs) I'm sure there are many reasons, but for me, I think... I forget to pray because I so often believe that I can understand scripture by myself without anybody's help. But that's a lie. I have to remember that that's a lie. I need and you need the Holy Spirit to illuminate our understanding. So we need to pray, not just before we study, but just be in an attitude of prayer throughout the whole time we're engaging with the Bible. 
what you can do is while you're studying the Bible, if you see something that makes you um, praise God, just stop and praise him for that. Uh, maybe there's something that God uses in the word to convict you of a sin. So you have to stop and ask for his forgiveness. Uh, maybe there's something that reminds you of somebody that you need to pray for. So just be on in an attitude of prayer throughout your whole study. So let me pray before we start in on this psalm. Father God, thank you so much for your word. It is living and active, and it is sharper than two, any two-edged sword. And it can show us who you are. And so I pray you would open our eyes and show us who you are through the study of your word. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, which who leads us into all truth. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Okay, so the next thing we would want to look for when we're studying is who wrote the psalm. Sometimes the author is listed in what are called the superscriptions. Do you know what those are? I need to go on a little Bible nerd rabbit trail, so I hope you don't mind. <laughs> I think it's best to tackle it now, even if it doesn't apply to Psalm 1. Plus, it's cool Bible nerd stuff, and I like it. So, hey, it's my podcast, right? I can do whatever I want. So, if you open any Bible to the Psalms, you'll see they've been edited in a certain way. In my Bible, each Psalm has a title, which is in boldface type. That title kind of gives a summary of the message of the Psalm. Those titles have been added, though, by the editors of our Bibles. They're not part of the original text. And remember that, because I'm going to talk about that a little later. But in many Psalms, right below the title and before verse 1 of the Psalm, you'll find what's called a superscription. And that superscription is sometimes printed in a different font than the body of the Psalm. Did you know that the superscription is part of the original text? Remember that verse numbers and chapters, they were added to the biblical text in the Middle Ages. They weren't original to the Hebrew manuscripts. Unfortunately, many of us look at those superscriptions and we kind of, maybe we don't even read them and we assume they're not as important, that they're not inspired like the text of the Psalm that has the verse numbers, but that's not true. So uh, let me share with you what Bible scholar Jim Hamilton has to say about this. This is what he says. For some reason, unbeknownst, unbeknownst to me, English translations of the Psalms decided not to number the superscriptions of the Psalms. This breaks with other printed practice since the superscriptions are numbered in printed editions of the Hebrew text, as well as the Greek and Latin translations. The verse numbers are not original to the authors of the individual Psalms, nor are they original to the collection of the Psalter. The verse references were added in the Middle Ages. For some reason, early English translators decided not to number the superscriptions, and they remain unnumbered down to the present day. The problem with not numbering the superscriptions is that it gives the impression that they don't belong with the biblical text. Not only do the superscriptions go unnumbered, translations often put them in a different font, whether in small caps or a smaller font. But one way or another, the superscriptions are marked off as being somehow different from the rest of the text of the psalm. <clears throat> that is fine, as long as it doesn't result in the superscription being ignored. Again, this point doesn't apply to Psalms 1 or 2, but remember it, we'll definitely be coming back to it when we tackle other psalms. So those superscriptions are part of the inspired text, and they give us needed context. So let's get back to Psalm 1. There is no superscription telling us who the author is, but if you do a little research in a study Bible, 
you'll find that the Psalms in this first section of the book, Psalms 1 through Psalm 41, are generally attributed to David, even if there isn't an explicit mention of him. All but four of the Psalms in this section mention David as the author. And as with most of the Psalms, we're not going to be able to figure out specifically when it was written, but that is not an essential piece of information, as we'll soon see. Now, another skill to use that is very often overlooked is repetitive reading. Now, have you noticed that the first skill I introduced was praying? And that's free to anybody. Anybody can do that. And now this other skill of repetitive reading, that's something anybody can do. So be encouraged that in when you first start studying, you already have some skills that you can do without needing any you know, higher sort of education. So I've talked about repetitive reading before, and I'm going to emphasize it again here. Slow, repetitive reading is something our culture is pushing hard against. It's a skill we're losing. We don't have patience for it. I'm sure you've all experienced it and seen it in your kids, but and maybe even seen it in yourself. <laughs> but we dearly need to recover it. Reading something over and over and over again is going to yield great rewards. Now, one way I'm going to suggest to help you with that skill, especially with Psalms, is to consider memorizing. This Psalm, Psalm 1, is only six verses. And so just imagine if you memorized it and then wherever you were in line at the store or doing laundry, getting dressed in the morning, doing dishes, a myriad of times and places, you could pull it out of the back pocket of your mind and read it to yourself, study it, and ponder what's in it. So think about memorizing what you're studying, especially Psalms, as a lot of them are so short, they're easily memorizable. Um, is memorizable a word? I don't know. But anyway, what we're looking for when reading this psalm repetitively is the basic outline of the psalm and its themes. So when you're first start starting to study, don't worry about getting deep into the text first. What we want to do is get <clears throat> kind of a 30,000 foot level um, overview of the psalm. So let me walk you through what I see, because I see two kinds of people in this psalm. The first one is introduced in the very first verse. Let me read that for you. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So here we have the blessed man. The first three verses describe this man, what he is like, with vivid imagery. And we're going to get into that in a moment. But if you notice, a shift happens in verse 4. And we know that because of the word but. Let me recite verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So you notice the comparison being made. In that one verse, there is a contrasting image, which we're also going to get to in a minute. And then the last two verses lay out the theme we're supposed to see. The last two verses say this, Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So we have the word therefore and the word for in these last two verses in verses 5 and 6. So in your study, look for those kinds of words. Those are going to clue you into transitions and conclusions that are being made. 
So overall, the theme that is being portrayed here in Psalm 1 is a contrast, a contrast between two kinds of people, the righteous and the wicked. So this psalm, even without going into detail in our study yet, we can see that the first psalm in this in the whole Psalter, the one situated at the entrance of the literary sanctuary, according to Tremper Longman, is asking the reader to identify with one of these two people, either the righteous or the wicked. So it's asking the question, who are you? Now, what's the next step in our study? Well, remember just a few minutes ago, I talked about how the editors of our Bibles have already added titles for the Psalms. It's at this point where I'm going to remind you of a really simple thing. It's kind of another tool. um, And it's, again, it's a really easily used tool, one that anybody can do. Um, It's a simple thing you can do in your Bible study that's going to yield great results. So if you can do this, print out a copy of this Psalm and maybe space it like take there's only six verses, so put extra space in between each verse. Um, Either type it out yourself or cut and paste from the internet. But the key is to take out the headings, take out the titles. All you want is the text itself. And this is going to really help as we get into studying more in depth. This is going to help you be more invested in the learning process. And this is my goal really in this podcast is to get you involved in the learning process. So at the top of your printed copy of the psalm, if you're able to do that, you can write a title or the theme of this psalm. In our Bibles, those titles are given to us, and that's fine sometimes, but in studying for yourself, you want to be as fully invested in the learning process as possible, like just like I said. So take the time to go through the psalm by yourself and come up with your own title. So what would you choose? <clears throat> well, I chose who are you, but you could choose two paths or two kinds of people. So once we've established the theme of the psalm, then we can get into the details of these two kinds of people. So what are these two kinds of people like? Um, In your study, one thing you could do would be to make a chart with the two headings, the righteous and the wicked. That might be something that kids would be into. You know, you could read read this psalm to them and just kind of, propose that this is the theme, explain to them that that's the theme. And then you could maybe, you know, a lot of people are homeschooling right now. Maybe you could give them an assignment and say, hey, you know, there's the righteous person and there's the wicked. And I want you to write down what the righteous person does or is like and what the wicked person is like. Okay, so that that's something you can do too. So let's look at the righteous man first. How is he described? So verse one, again, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. What you notice here is that this is the man who is blessed. Um, This first verse is emphasizing what he does not do. And here in verse one, we have a classic example of the parallelism, which I talked about in the previous episode. So let me remind you what parallelism is. It's a feature of Hebrew poetry where it repeats, intensifies, or contrasts an idea to communicate spiritual truth. So let's look at verse 1 to see what the parallelism is communicating. So first of all, it says that the man does not, he walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Then he says um, he doesn't stand in the way of sinners and he doesn't sit in the seat of scoffers. So let's look at the the action verbs. 
that are used there. So first it says he does not walk, then it says he does not stand, then it says he does not sit. Now, do you see there's an intensification there? By it, they're kind of, the author's kind of repeating the same thing, but he's intensifying it with each line, right? So walk, stand, sit. And so this, this man who does not do this, he doesn't get trapped in, um, it's kind of like he's slowing down, right? Um, he's walking, but then he, st but then, but then he stops walking and then he sits and then at the other part of the lines, it says the counsel of the wicked, then the way of sinners and the seat of scoffers. And what we can see here is that, um, we have the wicked, we have sinners and we have scoffers. And actually the word scoffer, that is not a good thing that we might think that that's fun to do, to scoff at people, but actually the biblical authors, that category of person is not a good category of person to be in. So imagine this person, this man, um, they first walk in the counsel of the wicked. So they kind of go along with what they're doing and then they stop walking and stand in the way of sinners. So they're kind of listening more attentively. And then what happens to this person? He sits and he doesn't just listen or participate in a conversation. He actually becomes like these people, right? Derek Kidner says that this person does not think like the wicked or behave like them or belong to their club, so to speak. So what would be some possible application? We can, we can automatically, you know, go to some application from this first verse. What does this look like in our day? And what warnings should we take from what the righteous man doesn't do? Or more specifically, who he doesn't associate with? It kind of reminds me of Proverbs 1. I've been um, memorizing in Proverbs lately. And um, in Proverbs chapter 1, it talks about, um, My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. Do not walk in the way with them. The author of Proverbs tells his son to not walk in the way with, with wicked people. So, you know, who are your closest friends? Um, what, who influences you the most, not just people, but what, what things influence you? What books, what TV shows, what kinds of social media influence you the most? So, that's, those are some points of application that you can really think about going forward. And I'm sure you could come up with even more. So then in verse two, <clears throat> there's a key word, but. Like I said above, look for these kind of word, kinds of words in your study. Words that show contrast, words that push an argument or idea along, like for, therefore, so. And here we have a contrast introduced. So verse two says, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So in verse 1, it stated that what the blessed man doesn't do, but here we learn what he does do. What does he do? He delights in and meditates on the law of the Lord. Let me ask you this. What is your immediate reaction to the word law? <laughs> Many of us recoil at that word. We automatically think rules and regulations, but listen to what Bible scholar Alec Motier says about the law of the Lord. He calls it, um, he says that God's law is the loving instruction for life 
that he has revealed to his redeemed. So think about that. I think that puts a much different spin on that word law and kind of just takes it out of the realm of um, something that just seems really austere and binding and just something that we would chafe at. So let me just repeat that. Alec Matir says that um, God's law is the loving instruction for life that he has revealed to his redeemed. So the righteous man or woman delights in and meditates on God's loving instruction for life. I hope that changes how you see God's word because this person delights in it. And that means that his heart and his affections are stirred up. So let me ask you, do you delight in God's word? Do you want to? These are points of application that may pop out to you as you study. So I encourage you, take them to the Lord and ask him to give you that delight, that hunger and desire for his word. And that's what I pray for you. For, for you who are listening to this podcast, I do pray that God would give you a greater hunger and desire for his word. Now, let's talk a little bit about this word meditation because it comes up in verse 2. And meditation, I don't know about you, where you live, but in, in the United States, meditation is really big right now. If you live in the States, there's a lot of talk about meditation apps and the benefits of meditation. But let's be clear, the meditation that is espoused by the world, by many Eastern religions, is contrary to the type of meditation the Bible recommends. The world and other religions encourage you to empty your mind as you meditate. But here in this verse, we see from careful reading that we are to meditate on something specific. Our meditation as believers is not inward, focusing on ourselves and emptying ourselves, but Godward, focusing on him and filling our minds with his word. Let me share what Matthew Henry, a 17th century Bible commentator, or uh, like I, I like to say about guys like that, they're one of those good old dead guys. So Matthew Henry is one of those good old dead guys. But <laughs> this is what he said about biblical meditation. To meditate on the word is to have an intimate acquaintance with it. It is to discourse with ourselves concerning the great thing contained in it with a close application of mind, a fixedness of thought, till we be suitably affected with those things and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. That really speaks to, to something, again, in our culture. I mean, we just want some instant gratification, don't we, when we go to the Word? We just want it to hit us with some truth real quick so we can get on with our day, right? But just listen again to what Matthew Henry says. He says that he want, that we should be suitably affected with the things in the Word and experience the savor and power of them in our hearts. Just be honest, we, we can't do that unless we spend time in it, right? When you experience the savor of a really rich food, that takes time. Um, last night, my husband and I celebrated our 25th anniversary by going out to one of our favorite restaurants. And I was just, I was really struck by how I was a little bit, um, in a hurry. And then I reminded myself that this, I'm not supposed to be in a hurry at this dinner. I'm supposed to be savoring everything that I'm eating, right? Not worrying about calories or anything like that. I'm supposed to be savoring it. And that took time. That took an, an 
you know, a change in my attitude. So let me ask you, have you ever really meditated on the word like this? I truly believe that that an intimate acquaintance with the loving instruction of our God and Father will go a long way toward giving us the hunger and delight that might be missing, right? You're not going to get a hunger and a delight for something if you don't spend time really devouring it, really chewing on it, right? The Bible is not fast food, okay? The Bible is not Chick-fil-A, even though I love Chick-fil-A. But the Bible is, if you could compare it to food, is like that filet mignon I had last night or like that expensive glass of wine. It's something to be savored and so we can experience the power of it in our hearts. Okay, so verse 3. In verse 3, here we have an example of another thing to look for in the Psalms when you're studying the Psalms, and that's imagery, because imagery is so powerful. It's it's used all the time throughout the Psalms and and and, and in other books of um, of the Bible that use biblical poetry. So imagery is using figurative language like metaphors and similes to communicate spiritual truth. Let me read verse three for you. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. So what is this person being compared to? He's like a tree. And so let's pay close attention to this image. And whenever we're dealing with imagery in the Bible, we need to examine it for its meaning. God has given us poetry and imagery to get us to use our imaginations. Again, it's going to take time. You need to sit in this and really think about it. So remember, the Bible isn't some dry rule book. It is God's great story of redemption, of bringing his people back to himself. So really think about these things. So with the image of the tree, if I asked you to draw a picture of this tree, and you know, this is also something you could do with your kids, but you could even ask adults to do this, right? Adults, adults can draw too. So how would you draw a picture of this tree? Or what if I had you go to the local hardware store and pick out a paint chip to represent the color of this tree? What color would come to mind? These are things you can do to help you in the learning process, to help deepen your study. So I encourage you to really get creative. So going forward, we can also use our comprehension skills to help us. We can use our imagination. We can use our comprehension skills. So we can ask those who, what, where, and why questions to get at the meaning behind this image of the tree. So the tree is firmly planted. Where is it planted? It's planted by streams of water. And why is that important? Well, the water is its life source. It's planted close to it. And then we have three lines that further describe it. It yields fruit. When does it yield fruit? It it yields fruit in its season. Okay, so, you know, sometimes as Christians, we feel like we need to be producing fruit nonstop, 24-7. But look at this image. It yields its fruit in its season. It's not trying to squeeze out fruit by its own strength, right? It's yielding its fruit in its season. And its leaf does not wither. And this man, likened to a tree, prospers in everything he does. So I want you to think of some adjectives that describe this tree. And this is also going to help us get at the underlying underlying meaning of this imagery, okay? So what comes to mind if you were to try to pick out some adjectives? 
Now, it might take you a while to figure that out, and that's okay. Sometimes when I teach Bible study to a group of women, I ask these questions and I just get silence because it it takes a little while for, for us to get used to thinking like this, kind of thinking back to our English class days where we had to come up with, you know, we had to write something and we had to come up with different adjectives and we might need to pull out a thesaurus and try, try to help us. So you might want to use a thesaurus to try to help you to come up with adjectives that would describe this tree. So be patient with yourself. And, and, and also, if you study with others, that would be a great benefit because they're going to come up with stuff that you won't, stuff that will make you think. So as I thought about this tree, I thought about these adjectives. I thought of the word vibrant and thriving. I also thought of flourishing. I thought of fullness and life. So now that we've examined the image, let's let's try to understand its meaning or put together the meaning um, or maybe summarize the meaning, the meaning of it. So we're going to do that by going back and kind of summarizing what is being portrayed in these first verses, because we've gone through a lot already. So paraphrasing is a great skill in Bible study. And um, that's also something that we're not used to doing. We're afraid we're going to get it wrong. But really try your hand at paraphrasing or summarizing what is going on in this verse. Um, so again, you're going to have to be patient with yourself and, and also dependent on the Lord to give you insight. So this is a place where you would want to just pray and maybe give yourself time. Ask the Lord to give you insight into really what this image means and how you could summarize it. So um, when I did that, um, I came up with this paraphrase. Um, so here's what I've got. The blessed person, the righteous man, has a high degree of pleasure in the Father's loving instruction. He keeps the word of God close to his heart, calling it to his mind often. And as a result, he will be like this tree, situated close to the source of nourishment. He will experience fullness and fruitfulness. Now, some of you may be thinking of some parallels here. Um, that this imagery sounds familiar to things in in the New Testament. And you'd be exactly right. So it's so cool when we see connections like this. Sometimes um, in your study, and I haven't gone over cross-references, but of course, you know, you're going to be using your printed copy of the text first to do your initial observations. But as you get into this more detailed study, you, you know, feel free to use your cross-references and everything. And sometimes when we use the cross-references, we're going to be able to see these connections. But also, sometimes God just points those connections out to you. So if we're familiar with the Gospels and the imagery that Jesus uses, we'll see some parallels here. Um, Jesus said in John 7 that if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. And in John 15, he says to his disciples that he is the vine and they are the branches. Abide in him, let his word abide in them, and they will bear much fruit. So I hope you see the implications of this and the applications we can draw from this powerful imagery, especially when connected to the words of Christ. There's an intimate connection here between the word and fruitfulness. So how intimately, again, are you acquainted with the word? It's coming back to that again. Is the word your life source? Now, many questions arise and hopefully the gentle conviction of the Holy Spirit. Don't take it as a discouraging rebuke. 
God is pointing you to the source of life, to his loving instruction, which is the source of vitality and blessedness. And maybe you've never seen the Bible in this way, but be encouraged, friends. Start asking the Lord to help you and to give you a hunger for him through his word. So there's a lot more I could say about these two verses. They're really rich, and I encourage you to keep digging in and really share your insights with me through the email or on Instagram or wherever. But let's go on to first verse four, because here we have a very different image that contrasts with the fruitful and vibrant tree. So verse four says, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So here we have a simile. Remember, a simile is a comparison using the words like or as. And this says the wicked are like chaff. So if you're filling in that chart, you would put chaff under the heading for what the wicked are like. But let me ask you a question. Do you know what chaff is? (laughs) A lot of us don't know what that is, especially those of us who live far away from an agricultural environment. So what can we do if we don't know what it is? Um, Well, in my Bible studies, there's a a funny story. I was teaching um, some of these principles of of Bible study. And I asked the class, I said, so, so what, what do you do if you don't know? And, and someone in the class just piped up and said, ask Google. (laughs) And I just laughed because that's really what we're all doing right now, right? We're asking Google all of our questions. I don't know if that's good or bad, but, um, you can look it up in the dictionary, right? If you don't know what chaff is. And what we find out is that chaff is what's left over after you thresh wheat. Now, Maybe you're not even familiar with what the threat, the wheat threshing process is like, but you can use YouTube to help too. So on my resource page of the website, I'm going to link to a video I find really helpful in explaining the threshing process. And I promise you it's really worth looking at because the contrast, especially if you watch that video with um, the imagery of the green, vibrant, fruitful tree in mind, that the contrast is really striking. So chaff is the waste product left over after the threshing process, right? The tree, but in contrast, the tree from verse three, right, is connected to a source of nourishment. Does the chaff have a root? No, the chaff has no root and it doesn't have any life. Does chaff bear fruit? No, it's dry and brittle and has no color. In the end, it is weightless trash that the wind blows away. So just sit with that for a moment. Just compare in your own mind that tree, vibrant, green, full of life, nourished by that stream of water, and then weightless, dry, brittle chaff that the wind blows away. That's powerful, isn't it? What impact is does that have on you? I hope you're seeing the impact that imagery has in the Bible and why God would choose to use this kind of language. He's trying to shake us up. He's trying to force us to look at ourselves. I want you to notice something else too. There are three verses dedicated to describing the righteous man and they are chock full of truth. But verse four is the only verse dedicated to describing the wicked. It's blunt and to the point. Think about that and what that might communicate. I'm still thinking about that myself. 
So let's go on to the last two verses because here we have the sobering conclusion for these two people. Listen as, you, listen as I lead you through how to understand what this psalm is getting at, what God wants the reader of psalms, more accu- accurately the worshiper, because the one who enters this book, the one who enters this literary sanctuary called the psalms, is coming to worship. Remember, these are songs of worship. So let me read verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Here we have another contrast, a contrast of conclusions. And we have a judgment. There will be a judgment. I don't think we like to think about that. We kind of like to gloss over that word, right? But judgment is coming. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, there will be a time when the wicked and the righteous will be separated from each other. And the conclusion for the wicked is not good, as we see here in verse 5. They will not stand. But contrast that with the righteous. In verse 6, we see that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. Let me unpack that word know for you. God's knowledge of the righteous here isn't some kind of general awareness of them. No, this kind of knowledge is a choosing and saving kind of knowledge. Do you remember the sobering words of Jesus in Matthew 7? Let me, let me um, recite those for you. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. This is sobering stuff, friends. Jesus says, I never knew you. That knowing has to do with being saved. But the end for the righteous is secure. The end, well, the end for the wicked is not. They will perish. Let me quote Psalm 37, 18 to 20, because I think it's a good cross-reference for these last two verses of Psalm 1. Psalm 37, 18 to 20 says this, The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine, they have abundance, but the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish like smoke. They vanish away. Do you see the parallel imagery used from Psalm 37 compared to Psalm 1? The wicked are like chaff in Psalm 1 that the wind drives away. And here in Psalm 37, they're like smoke. They vanish away. They may look glorious, but in the end, they will vanish away. So at the end of this psalm, we're faced with this question. Who are you? This psalm forces us to identify with either the righteous or the wicked. Do you notice in this psalm that there are only two choices? None of us is neutral in this world, right? There's there's not a third choice in this psalm. It's either the righteous or the wicked. And that's kind of uncomfortable to see. 
Because if we're honest, we wouldn't call ourselves either righteous or wicked. Even believers in Christ have a hard time calling themselves righteous. Doesn't that make us sound prideful like a Pharisee? And who would openly call themselves or another person wicked? Of course, in history, there are quite a few people we would call wicked. Hitler, Stalin, serial killers, people like this. But what about our neighbor who doesn't believe in Christ? What about those in our communities who don't claim faith in the Lord, but do so many good works? Friends, this this is sobering stuff, but I want to remind you that we need to stick to the word of God and what it says about humanity, because it is the truth. It's telling us the truth. And in telling us the truth, God is giving us a great gift. It is his great grace to us. Let me read a passage from Romans 3. Romans 3, 9 to 20 says this. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Do you see what this is saying? All are guilty before God. Two chapters later in Romans 5, It speaks about all being enemies of God, but through Christ we are reconciled to him. So before we know God, we are naturally enemies. And then in Ephesians chapter 2, it says, we are all dead in our sins and by nature children of wrath. Friends, we need to sit with the truth of the Bible and realize how bad this news is. We need to know it. We need to understand it. Because if we don't, we won't fully comprehend the glory of the good news. So if all are sinners under the judgment of God and in the camp of the wicked that Psalm 1 describes, how can we possibly be made righteous? Let me read some more of Romans 3. This is Romans 3, 21 to 26. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This is the good news in putting Jesus forward as our substitute for our sins. 
the one who would take on the wrath of God in our place, he took that judgment, we become justified. Justification is the legal declaration that we are righteous in God's sight. 2 Corinthians 5.21 explains this exchange. It says, For our sake he made him, Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Do you hear that? We become righteous. Christ is our righteousness, not because of anything we have done. We cannot make ourselves righteous. We cannot, on our own effort, put ourselves in the camp of the righteous, like it says in Psalm 1. But we are made righteous, declared righteous by our faith in Jesus Christ. So I hope you've enjoyed this deep dive into Psalm 1. There's, there's a lot more I could say. But remember to go to the website and click on that resource tab. You'll find some more study questions and resources there. And let me know what you think. I want you to dig in for yourself. Gather some friends. Go through this psalm with your kids, maybe. I'd love to know what God shows you from studying Psalm 1. But next time, we'll dig into Psalm 2, which asks asks this question. Who is your king? But until next time, remember that whoever you are, And wherever you are in this journey of studying the Bible, you can do this. Bye for now.